Hello and welcome back to ZSL's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, a postdoctoral researcher here at the Zoological Society of London's very own Institute of Zoology. And I have used the summer break to successfully argue that I should never be left unsupervised. So please welcome today's co-presenter, Claudia Gray. Claudia is based in ZSL's conservation programs and, unlike me, actually knows what she's talking about. So, Claudia, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, today's topic is a cause close to your heart and close to your workplace. So today we are celebrating 10 years on the edge. To reassure our viewers, Claudia isn't actually working on an edge and we also haven't kept her there for 10 years. Claudia, what's edge and what is your role in the program? So the Edge of Existence program highlights evolutionary distinct and globally endangered species. So that's where the acronym comes from, E-D-G-E. Our team builds local capacity to conserve these species in the wild. We increase awareness of the species worldwide as well as helping them on the ground. So edge species are really unique. They generally have a striking appearance, they might have unusual behaviour, and they might have particularly distinct morphology. And sometimes or often they have all of those features combined. So if we lost these species, there would, by definition, be nothing else like them left on the planet. So my role is to supervise and train the EDGE fellows. So these are early career conservationists that are native to the countries where the EDGE species are found. And they are given two years of funding and a lot of training and support to put in place conservation research and action on the ground. They are often working out new interesting facts about the species, trying to find where the most important habitats are to protect, or also um, working often with local communities to raise awareness of the species and, and what can be done to save it. Excellent. So now we know what the Chinese giant salamander, the long-beaked echidna, and the shoebill all have in common. They're all edge species. Yes, I read the brief. So to talk and celebrate the weird and wonderful, we have some guests with us who know all about edge and edge species. Claudia, who's up first? So this evening we're very pleased to be joined by the Edge of Existence Programme Manager, Nisha Owen. So Nisha has been working with the Edge Programme since 2013, and she's now leading the expansion of our team to include more projects all over the world and new taxonomic groups. So this year, for example, we've released the first exciting reptile list. Nisha has not only trained many of the EDGE Fellows, she's also helped them to scale up their projects. And in addition to the work with the EDGE Fellowship, she's started an award-winning free online learning course to help increase conservation capacity beyond the limits of the EDGE Fellowship. So Nisha, this year we're really happy to be celebrating 10 years of the EDGE of Existence programme here at ZSL. Can you tell us a bit more about how this programme came about? ZSL's Edge of Existence programme is the world's only conservation initiative dedicated to using phylogenetically informed conservation prioritisation to identify key species for conservation attention. Even though researchers had explored the possibility of prioritising species for conservation based on their phylogenetic diversity for over 30 years, it was actually only in 2007 that scientists from the Institute of Zoology were able to do exactly that and produce such a methodology. What we did was we combined the evolutionarily distinctiveness of a species, effectively a measure of value, weighted by its extinction risk, a measure of urgency, to create the first phylogenetically informed priority list of species that could be used to direct conservation efforts. So I've already explained a little bit about how the fellowship works and what my role is, but it would be great to hear from you the overview of once a species gets onto a list, what is the breadth of things we do then? 
So basically, once a species is considered a priority on the edge list, this means that we think it should be a priority for conservation attention. So we raise awareness, given that often these species are very little known and overlooked by conservationists. And here at ZSL, we support conservation action for those species that are receiving little or no conservation attention. We primarily do this through building the capacity of early career in-country conservationists dedicated to conserving their edge species. And in 10 years, we've trained 68 fellows working on 63 species in 36 countries. Our 10-year anniversary is our launch pad into the next exciting adventures for the project. What do you see on the horizons for the Edge of Existence programme? Now that the EDGE programme and the EDGE metric is actually 10 years old, what we've done this year is to undertake a review with leading experts in both phylogenetics and extinction risk so that we can incorporate scientific advances, allowing us to address things like uncertainty and complementarity in order to effectively update our lists and expand the listing process to even more taxonomic groups. We're also exploring EDGE zones, regions of the world with disproportionate amounts of threatened evolutionary history, and how to track the conservation attention and effectiveness for the edge species that we focus on. And of course, we'll be training more and more conservation leaders to undertake conservation action in their own countries, both through the fellowships and through our online learning courses. So when you mention complementarity, can you briefly explain what that means in terms of uh, edge species or the phylogeny that's underlying it? Basically, what that means is that we're interested in what we've called edge lineages. So these are families or groups of edge species within a particular clade that all tend to be threatened. So good examples would be pangolins, where both the African and Asian species are threatened, the long-beaked echidnas, both species of selenodon, suglossid frogs. So these are frogs that are found only in the Seychelles, coupled with a purple frog in India. Um, And also monophyletic species, so species that are the only representation of their group, so things like the secretary bird or the shoebill. So, Nisha, one final question, my favourite question. What's your favourite edge species and why? I would have to say that my favourite edge species is probably the pygmy sloth. This smallest species of sloth was only described in 2001 and it lives off the coast of Panama on a tiny island that's only 4.3 square kilometres and there's believed to be less than 100 of these individuals left in the wild. So this is particularly close to my heart because it's a project that I've been out to visit several times that we've nurtured and it's one that I'm really looking forward to developing in the future with Claudia. And um, since we're talking about Claudia, Claudia what's your favourite edge species? You say this is an easy question? This is a really difficult question. There are a lot of great edge species. So I kind of have a short list and it changes because I learn about new species very frequently. One of my favourites that I get to see quite regularly is here in the zoo. So everyone else can come and visit it as well. It's the clawed frog. So this is from the Xenopus genus, which was it was eggs of Xenopus frogs that were used as the first pregnancy test ever. It's, it's a remarkable frog, but I particularly like it because of the way it swims so you, you you see it swimming around the tank and it has these big webbed feet and little claws at the end and it kind of swims in this jerky manner and it's just really charming so there's there are many edge species at the zoo so i'd thoroughly recommend coming to visit them excellent thank you very much nisha right so we have heard a bit about edgy species already um i guess it's just about time to learn a bit about how we can measure this global endangerment and evolutionary distinctiveness which is also quite difficult to say claudia to come up with your edge list what information do you need on species 
Our recipe for edge species involves two main ingredients. So the first is the ED part, and that's the good phylogeny. So this is a map of the tree of life, essentially, and how all species are related to each other. So that's what Nisha briefly talked about already, the phylogenies that go into calculating the edge scores. Absolutely. And then the second, uh, second ingredient is the GE part. So that's our measure of global endangerment. The measure that we, we use for that is the IUCN red list. In order to make the edge list, we need all of the species in the group to have been assessed, or a very, very large number of them, and that will tell us how close they are to going extinct. So then we combine those two ingredients, the ED from the phylogeny and the GE from the IUCN red list, and we have a carefully calculated equation, which then produces the edge score. So once we have the edge score for all of the different species in that particular taxonomic group, for example, mammals, we can then rank all of the species by the edge score. And we prioritize those that have the highest scores or are the highest ranking species. So these phylogenies or these super trees that Nisha was also referring to, they're obviously very key to this prioritization method. So how do you come up with these phylogenies? So we actually use published phylogenies uh, that have been through scientific peer review. But as with all scientific methods, there are strengths and weaknesses to different approaches. And so we do some work in-house to refine the phylogenies or help to make sure all the species we want scores for are included. But most importantly, we work with experts in phylogenetics, academics and scientists who are very skilled in this area, and they make sure that we can embrace the strengths of phylogenies and that we can overcome the weaknesses and that we keep our methods up to date. It just so happens that we have two of these experts here today, so I'm very happy to introduce our next two guests, James and Jan. James Rosendell is from Imperial College London, and Jan Wong is uh, from the Oxford Big Data Institute. Now, James is a lecturer at Imperial College, and Jan is an evolutionary biologist, and together they've come up with an excellent idea, which is called the One Zoom Tree of Life. So James and Jan, could you explain to Moni, in a nutshell how phylogenies are constructed? Well, it's actually a massive area of research, of biological research. Uh, and nowadays, we tend to use molecular data. We tend to look at the DNA inside creatures and we try and compare them. And essentially what you try and do is work out, does this creature share pretty much all the same DNA sequence as letters with this other creature? And if it does, then they're quite closely related. And then you look at another creature, maybe you're looking at two sorts of elephants, and then you look at uh, an anteater or something, and you realise that the anteater, you look at its DNA, you try and compare it, and the letters are, are reasonably different. Um, and so essentially, when I was an undergraduate, people were only just starting to do this. They would start instead looking at the, the external form of organisms and saying, do they have flippers and do they have eyes and do they, how many legs do they have and things like that. Now, almost entirely people are going to DNA because it allows you to do these very, very precise comparisons across very large swathes, the animal kingdom, plant kingdom, and in fact, across the whole of life. So just to come clean, I am at least a little bit aware of how phylogenies are constructed. I once actually built a phylogeny of turtles with a master's student of mine, and I've never looked back since. Uh, it's a lot of work, but of course it's a very powerful tool, especially once you can visualize the relationships between different organisms properly. So let's get straight to it. What is this one zoom tree of life that I've heard about, and how did the project come about? 
well, the idea is to take these phylogenies, which people are building, bigger and bigger phylogenies, and then find a way to make them accessible to anyone, make them a public resource that's just out there on the internet for people to explore, not just for the geeky scientists or phylogeneticists like, like us to, to go and look at them. And that is the reason why OneZoom was built. What I should say as well is um, it may sound a bit dry that we're trying to display phylogenies, but this is the natural structure to the living world. It's essentially the, the natural way in which you would represent where, uh, how all organisms are uh, sort of related to each other and where they sit effectively on this massive tree of life compared to each other. And that's, that, as biologists, tells us a huge amount about the biology and about the origin and about the history of these species. It's a very, very natural way to try and portray the whole of life. And uh, until James came up with his OneZoom software, there was no real way to do that for every species of life on Earth. People had met, built very small phylogenies. Um, we came up with a way of visually displaying very, very large phylogenies. At the moment, we have about 2.2 million species on our single phylogeny um, that you can display on a single web page. And that takes quite a lot of effort. In, in the context of conservation there is a question of why should people care about things if they can't see them and of course a lot is done to help people understand and immerse themselves in biodiversity but by having a tree of life explorer that contains all life that's giving another kind of immersive experience to see just how much we've got to lose and how amazing all of that is and in the context of the Edge of Existence program specifically, which I've been a huge fan of ever since the start, really, and have been involved with OneZoom and the Edge project together for the last five years, what OneZoom is doing is it is giving a way that naturally links and gives prominence to the phylogeny, the tree of life, which is exactly the thing that the Edge project is focused on as well, uniquely in its position. And OneZoom also colours all the leaves of the tree according to whether they are globally endangered or not, which is again exactly the principle of the Edge project. And so I really like the, the way that the, the two ideas work together there. What's quite nice, even for us, we, we built this software, but whenever we look at it, we find new cool stuff all around the place. Like James was looking around for something found with the nervous shark, which I quite like as a name. He was recently also looking for some sort of target to uh, present as uh, for this presentation that we're giving today, actually, and he found the target beetle, which we've never seen before. And basically everywhere you go on this massive tree of life that we built, there is cool stuff. And I think enthusing people about that and allowing them to realise the, the diversity of life that there is out there and what they risk losing if we don't make sure that we preserve habitats and species is, is a very important thing to do. So you've already answered, I think, very well my question about how, the, how OneZoom can help with conservation. Uh, so I'm also really interested to know what's been the extra information you've got about popularity of species from OneZoom and what's been the most popular species so far? Well, I was the one who calculated the popularity index. Um, as far as I know, no one else has a list of every single species of life on Earth and how popular it is with the general public. Obviously, we're going to be interested in the top 10. Uh, what would you say? What do you think is the uh, most popular, I don't know, five the panda, maybe? It's high up there? No. Well, the panda is there, but it's only actually number 11. This may be to do with how we've constructed the popularity index, of course, because we include, for example, humans that are a species, right? So humans are, in fact, number 10, uh, slightly more popular than pandas, 
we have quite a lot of the great ape species in there. Um, and that's probably because people are interested in humans and our close relatives. And so they might not be interested in a specific mountain gorilla, but they are interested in apes in general more than they are interested in bears in general. And so in some way that's reflected in the popularity. No, but the, the, the most popular species is the one that you might actually expect, which is the dog. Obviously, that's what everyone is interested in. I was walking here to the zoo uh, today, and there were quite a lot of people with dogs. And, and, that, and I was walking along thinking, yes, people really are very keen on dogs. And it's not terribly surprising that... Uh, well, I say dog, actually. It's the grey wolf, because the domestic dog is a subspecies of the grey wolf. And so the grey wolf, together with the dog and the dingo and all those other subspecies, uh, together make, make the most popular species. Excellent. So we've now established once and for all that dogs are better than cats, uh, which I've always wanted to scientifically to have scientifically proven. So thanks very much, Jan, for that. So we've been talking about what the most popular species is, but Jan, uh, James, what is your favourite age species and why? I like the echidna. Why? Well, <laughs> so many things to say. So I like it because it's a very surprising animal. I like talking about convergence evolution. and It has the spines of a hedgehog, but it combines that with such, so many other crazy things, that the beak similar to the duck-billed platypus, and also the fact that it reproduces by hatching out of an egg. You can surprise most people with that. People have heard of the platypus, but they have not heard of the long-beaked echidnas. And another reason why I particularly like the long-beaked echidnas is because there's a collection of three of them together, all seriously endangered, and that, I think, makes them all the more valuable. Um, I suspect that the species I'm going to mention is an edge species, uh, and the reason I'm going to mention it is actually not because of it, it itself, but because of a commensal uh, association it has. It's the aardvark. And I don't know if any of you, I don't know if either of you know, but it has an amazing commensal relationship with something called the aardvark cucumber, which is the only underground cucumber in the world. And it digs up this cucumber and eats it, and, and the seeds come out and then they grow by its burrows. And this is supposedly the reason why, almost uniquely among ant eating animals, of which there are several convergent forms, it still has molar teeth to eat the cucumbers. <laughs> which is really cool. It's a specific cucumber just for aardvarks. I mean, how cool is that? That is definitely very cool. Um, so I guess it's, it's interesting you picked the aardvark because you, in doing so, have highlighted one of the most exciting things about Edge, which is that the aardvark is very high-ranking in ED, but it's not particularly highly endangered. So those are the two things that we get to combine through Edge. Um, the aardvark is incredible species but isn't very highly ranked on our list because of that reason speaking about the tree of life again um how can people help with the one zoom tree of life project is there a way they can support this well there definitely is and in fact that was the motivation originally behind jan's popularity index we wanted to crowdfund this project which hasn't really properly received a scientific grant specific for its purpose and our idea of how to do this was to give people the opportunity to sponsor a leaf on the tree of life. And, of course, what people said when I originally suggested the idea was, oh, I bet all the good species have gone already. Well, no, they haven't, because the good species, or the exciting popular ones, are pulled out by Jan's popularity index and made to be more expensive, whereas sort of some boring <laughs> slime will be very, very cheap, and therefore there's still plenty of leaves available to sponsor at all levels. 
So that's very exciting. Everyone can now go out and zoom in on their favourite species and uh, put their name on it. So, Moni, do you think you'll go and do that? Done it already. Oh, very impressive. Which species did you sponsor? A lovely little mussel called Pigarandon grandis, or to use a common name, the giant floater. Um, yes, another one of those weird and wonderful species that hide on the tree of life. I can only recommend browsing through the tree of life a little bit more. The day I sponsor that, best day ever. Right, and can we just quickly mention how people can find the tree of life? You need to go to our website, which is www.onezoom.org. That's not the number one, it's spelt O-N-E. And the reason why we call it OneZoom is because all this information about life on Earth is on one page and all you have to do is zoom. So you would explore it just like you would Google Earth, zooming in to see more information. Cool, get exploring everybody. And thank you very much, Jan and James. Right, so I know that we're based at the Zoological Society of London, so it's no wonder that we've been talking primarily about animals. But what about plants? We now have with us, from the Royal Botanic Gardens, the very aptly named Felix Forest. Um, So, Felix, are there plants that are on the edge too? Yes, there's plenty of plants on the edge. In fact, in general, about 20% of the plants are threatened, and there are a lot of plants that are sitting on very long branch that have unique evolutionary history. So there's definitely a large amount of plants that are on the edge, and especially in gymnosperms, where 40% of the species are actually threatened. So there's even more species in gymnosperms that are on the edge. So for the benefit of our listeners, what are gymnosperms? So gymnosperm is a, a fairly small group of plants that have naked seeds. So gymnosperm means naked seeds, so they don't have fruits. And it's, there are just about a thousand, a, a thousand species of gymnosperms compared to the flowering plants, or the angiosperms, which comprise about 370,000 species. So it's a small group of, basically, that include all the conifers, all the cycads, and also the ginkgo, which is a very isolated lineage in the plant tree of life. So I'm putting together an edge mammal list. I suppose there's lots of stuff known about many of our mammals, although obviously this is not generally true um, for some of the smaller mammals. But um, how easy was it to put together an edge list for a plant group? Is there enough data for plants to carry this out robustly? Well, for gymnosperms, it was relatively easy because it's not a very big group. It's just, like I said, just over a thousand species. And there was quite a lot of good data out there already in terms of the molecular data to build the tree and most of this, those species have been assessed using the uh, IUCN red list criteria and uh, so it was fairly easy to put the gymnosperm list together if we were to try to do the same thing with angiosperms then we have a lot more work to do because the data there is a lot more sparse considering that they are 370,000 species of 370,000 species. Wow, excellent. We we will not keep you very long for this podcast so you can get on with it. (laughs) Felix, one last question for you. It's not a tricky one. What's your favourite edge species and why? That's a good one. Actually, among the gymnosperms, my favourite species of gymnosperm is probably not in the top 100 species of edge. I think the favourite species of gymnosperm for me is the Welwitchia that grows in the Namib Desert and the, the uh, west coast of Southern Africa. And it's really an oddball. It's funny because despite the fact that it doesn't come as one of the top edge species, it is probably one that lives really on the edge of, of what is possible for any plant. And it's just totally weird. So that probably will be my favorite one, even if it's not in the top 100. 
but it's literally an edge species. So more literal than the acronym suggests. Good, excellent. Thank you very much, Felix. So we hope that you enjoyed hearing about our EDGE program here at ZSL and how it has come on in leaps and bounds to conserve those species which are both highly threatened with extinction and evolutionary very distinct. The weird and wonderful, really. We are now off to enjoy a glass of wine with the speakers and to toast the next 10 years of EDGE existence program. We're also going to raise a glass to all of the wonderful EDGE fellows that we help to support and that do superb conservation work on EDGE species in the wild. And before we go, remember www.edgeofexistence.org for all the information about the EDGE programme. To the weird and wonderful. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. <laughs>